Welcome to the online broadcast. I'm Carice Hendrick. And I'm Brett Johnson. And we're both anti-fraud experts. But with very different sets of experiences. I've been in the anti-fraud space for over a decade, working with some of the largest online companies in the world to help them prevent payment fraud. And prior to several years ago, I was a fraudster, committing several different types of fraud online until I ended up on the Secret Service's most wanted list, spent some time in prison. Since I've dedicated my career to helping businesses and consumers protect themselves against the type of people like I used to be. And this is our fourth podcast dedicated to fraud issues that impact CMP merchants. And before we get started, we have to say a giant thank you to everyone who's listened, commented, shared a link to the podcast, sent private messages of support, commented on social media with the nicest feedback. Sometimes when you're creating something, you never know if it'll be well received. And we're both just so humbled by the support. So thanks, you guys, so much. And we love hearing from you. I have to say the same. I mean, it is, uh, it's very humbling to, uh, to have people listen to our podcast and, and get value out of it. We appreciate it. And, uh, we are here to help you. I mean, we're, we're here to assist and, and try to counter the type of fraud that that's, that merchants are seeing. Right. And I mean, I was actually talking about this the other day with somebody, we aren't doing this for our egos or our benefit to, you know, become famous or anything like that. It, I mean, I firmly believe that Brett will, you know, have TV shows and movies about him soon. But, you know, at least from my perspective and, and him as well, like we're not trying to do this for ourselves. We really do, like Brett said, we want to help you guys. I mean, we the information that we know and have gathered over the years does no good if we don't share it. And I think it's really fun that this platform has been created where we can provide this information to you on your commute home or while you're doing the dishes or whatever it is heard some funny stories about that or not working. <laughs> <laughs> I hear I hear that we're, you know, good for <laughs> people who want to pretend like they're working. I mean, you kind of are if you're in this industry while you listen to our podcast. <laughs> Trying to go to sleep. I'm like, oh, do you really want to listen to my voice as you fall asleep? But no, we really appreciate it a lot. And we really want to hear from you too. I mean, if there's a topic that you're dealing with at work or just in your own life or that you've always wondered about what a former fraudster or a anti-fraud expert would I always stumble on that word when I call myself that I know I need to get better at that <laughs> but you know if you want our opinions on something we're happy to and we have a long list of topics that we plan on discussing over the next few months and uh, maybe years but definitely contribute we want to know what you want to know you know I just came back well not come back I've been back a couple of weeks from Europe I gave a, a TED talk over there when I came back I landed in 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 New York and immediately caught a flight to San Francisco to speak at a conference. Then I went down to Los Angeles and I consulted with a big merchant there. And hopefully we're going to have the fraud manager on our podcast soon as for an interview. But We will. I actually talked to him on Friday about what we're going to discuss. Outstanding. He did <laughs> tell me. That. He said, he, he, man, he was complaining. You would not believe how much he was complaining. He was talking about how if it were identity theft for the reason for a chargeback, that there was no time limit on it. And oh, ticked about yes. That. 
Yes, I I know he's listening and laughing right now about that. Um, it's actually on the private label card. So we got down to it the other day because he asked me about it, being the chargeback nerd that I am. And <laughs> <laughs> it's on the private label card. So I think that that would be a good topic to dive into in another episode. But Amen. yeah, I mean, I would be interested, though, if merchants have private label cards and you're starting to see chargebacks for the entire account, even if it's a couple years old, because the company that you contract through for your private label card says that it was identity theft at the very beginning. I don't know what the rules are for liability on private label cards, but it seems to me that if that company is the one doing the vetting and obviously somebody's paying the bill for a couple years, that that wouldn't be the case. But I'd be interested to hear if anyone else is dealing with that. That would help contribute to another episode and maybe help this merchant be less angry or, you know, at least know he's not alone. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you and I have both been traveling. This is actually our first time recording since we launched the podcast. Full disclosure, we, you know, recorded about four episodes, three, four episodes before. And Brett was traveling to Europe, as he said, and all across the U.S. And ironically, on that same day that you flew from New York to San Francisco, I was flying from Seattle to New York. So we are both at JFK <laughs> Airport, but you were there in the morning and I was there at night. <laughs> well, we both know that's better than LaGuardia. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> Sorry, anyone who's a fan of LaGuardia. I don't, I don't think there's exists. many. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we won't make anyone mad. Yeah, I've been also consulting and working with some great companies and really impacting some some good change and that's been really fun too I worked with a large fortune 500 company to automate their chargeback process and another company to help them learn chargebacks to prevent them before they even start because they're just relaunching a product so yeah we've been busy in our other jobs but uh we're really both i know looking forward to getting back to business to the podcast business mm -hmm. i agree so why don't we start with what the fraud <laughs> what the yes brett what the fraud <laughs> well I, I just want i kind of wanted to get this out so uh so i do a lot of darknet monitoring for the fbi and a lot of the companies that i work for and one of the things i've noticed recently that these fraudsters are talking about is carding tickets to events to concerts uh, broadway shows things like that and one of the ways they're doing it and it works with a major event ticket provider right now is they're using cards that are in the same state that the event is in. The IP number is matching the location of the card. So say I'm in the state of Alabama. If they're having a concert in Alabama, the fraudster would buy a card from Alabama. He would use an IP that's in the in that state of Alabama or an iPhone or an Android device or something like that that would show the same IP as that. That simple technique right there, just the event is in the same state, the card's in the same state, the IP is in the same state, that is really hitting this ticket agency pretty hard right now. And what's surprising is that that specific type of fraud exactly like that has been going on for years. I mean, that's one of the things that beginning fraudsters really start talking about and doing right now is that this specific ticket agency, it had been, it had been to the point where that was not allowed, but I understand they had switched fraud providers recently. <laughs> so yeah. Course, how how did you hear that? Well, I think I heard that from my co-host. <laughs> and that well, that tends to be the way, isn't it? I'll, I'll say, you know, this company's being hit pretty hard. And you'll say, well, you know, that company just changed fraud managers or providers. Yeah, it's, it's happened more times than I can count. Yeah, I mean, to add on that, I know the former head of fraud for that company. And so I actually sent him a text message on a Sunday 
when he told me about that and said, hey, you know, I know that you know people that are still there. I'm not as connected to them as you are. Like, you, know, you might want to let them know that this is working. And he said that it was an issue several years ago and they fixed that. Like, that was a kind of an easy thing that they had fixed. But that he understood that they had just switched fraud provider companies. And that happens sometimes where, you know, you think that all of them are created the same or that this one's going to be even better. And it might, but there's always going to be something that maybe isn't the same. And I think the biggest lesson out of this is that fraudsters are always checking your tools. They're always testing your systems. I mean, it hadn't worked for five years and is within a week of switching fraud providers. They were going to town at this and posting on the dark web forums that you saw that this right. was working at this company. And that's, that's um, one of the things. I mean, you see that. So, so for a fraudster, the toolbox, every tool is always there. Sometimes mm-hmm. those tools aren't needed or are, you know, they're, they're obsolete for a while. But meanwhile, the, the, the good guys, the anti-fraud companies and security companies, you know, they're, they're looking at the current fraud techniques. So they're, they're kind of dismissing that fraud that was capable, you know, that was happening five years ago. Well, that was five yeah. years ago. They're no longer doing that anymore. So we won't worry about that. Meanwhile, the fraudsters are like, well, let's see if those old tools work again. <laughs> and that's what happens. Absolutely. And and the company they switched to is actually one that I thought pretty highly of, seen a demo and thought it looked pretty good for future fraud and for current fraud. But you're absolutely right. Like if the fraudsters are still checking, you know, just the simplest of fraud and the people who built this new anti-fraud tool aren't thinking about yesterday's fraud then that can still get through. Not all fraud tools are created equal. And the other thing is, is when you have all these layers of rules in your system from five years ago from an old fraud manager, you may not really think to transfer them to the new system. And so I think that that might have been the case. I mean, I certainly don't want to place blame on, on the company on its own. But if you have somebody new in charge, they're maybe not going to remember that this specific fraud was an issue. So, you know, my suggestions are to really test the new fraud system as much as possible. Try to transfer the rule sets or at least, you know, there's not really a straight technological transfer, but re-entering those into the new system and do a proof of concept as much as possible. But also, like I said, try to, you know, add those legacy rules to the system and even hire a fraud pen tester. I may be talking with one now. There are a few, but it's really important to poke holes in your new system uh, so you can plug them before there are any huge losses associated and before it's too late. And that's something Brett's done for several Fortune 100 companies. And I've made some of the introductions and you have. Uh, you've done a lot on your own as well. And I think you have a very good reputation with it that you are very good because you think like a high level fraudster, but you can also come down to, you know, the old school tried and true methods too, and really test out those systems and, and rules because I mean, this is something, and I think it's also important to say that you didn't really think that this was a huge deal because you've seen this so much and you know that it works. You just kind of thought it was like an elementary fraud issue. But I think that to merchants, we don't think like bad guys. So, you know, we don't think why that they would want to have a card issued in the same state and an IP and, you know, the event or, you know, the shipping address or whatever it is for your company, that that would all be the same because they're trying to think of how can I look the most legitimate. So I just think it's a really good reminder that there 
always testing your systems and to make sure that you try to keep things as systemic as possible. No, you're, you're completely right. I mean, that's, uh, with me, I, I, I didn't think anything of it because, you know, I'm, I'm coming from it from, from that criminal mind, that, that mindset. And that's just in the toolbox. So it's something right. that's always been there and you always consider that. But, you know, when you, when you're talking to merchants or security companies, you know, they, they're not considering that. They're looking at the new types of fraud. That right. There. You know, we have to deal with this. This is what's hitting us. But the thing is, is as I said, those tools are always there. So, um, you know, and that's that's that type of technique. It's it's very rudimentary. I mean, uh, most most fraudsters now know that local cards are better, local information is better. You want the IP to match instead of worrying about trying to work a proxy or anything like that. You just grab a mobile device. Hopefully, there's an app as well associated with the store or the uh, the company that you're mm. trying to hit. You install the app, and the chances of it going through it it, it increases greatly at that point. Hmm. Interesting. And would you say that? This type of tactic is only going to work with small issuing banks because they're local. I mean, because the national ones wouldn't really matter, right? That's the weird thing is, so so a fraudster, a good fraudster, if there is such a thing, but a skilled fraudster, let's put it that way, a skilled fraudster has uh, has bin lists, and the, the bin list tell him which areas the bins are good for and everything else. So so a lot of the times, the, the smaller banks are better but I, I could name off a couple of extremely large banks that uh, are pretty wide open when it comes to fraud. Um, I, I, gosh, I want to say the name so bad. <laughs> so, uh, the the bin number I can. He say knows that. I'll break out my mom voice <laughs> if he does. I, I will say that the that the number one bin number for that fraudsters are looking for is four one four seven two zero, and that has been that way for. It's 2018. It's been that way for five years that I know of. Hmm. So uh, if you've got a credit card that begins with those six digits, that is the numbers that fraudsters love because hmm. it's a rewards card. It comes with a high balance. The, the since it is a rewards card, the company, the bank wants you. They expect that large charge on there. Mm -hmm. That bank's not extremely great about verifying orders, so it's 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 very easy to use those cards to commit fraud. Hmm. You know, I wonder, too, on this fraud, if it really does matter where the issuing bank is from, because a lot of merchants don't have access to bin lists. So I'd be willing to bet that at least with some fraud providers, what really is mattering is the IP address and the event or, you know, the the IP address and the shipping address or whatever it is that that's, you know, really the case. But I could be wrong. You know, there are some fraud providers that do have bin lists and, and do run rules on that information and, and you're right and you know so they're looking at the, does the shipping match does the billing match but you know so so fraudsters are and it, it happened with this company i was speaking to the other day but fraudsters are aware now that security companies are trying to to gauge things like how old is the email things right like that. so so mm -hmm. what what's the solution for that well you can use a paid domain if you want to but what these guys were doing and the, and the orders were going through they were using the email of the customer. They weren't worrying about coming <laughs> up with an email address. They just used the real email, and the orders were going through just fine. Right. Yeah. So what, so what the fraudsters are doing is they're using, you know, they're they're buying ten cards local. They're putting through ten orders shipped to ten different addresses, alternate, you know, drop addresses, and they don't have access to email. So what they do is is that at, at night after the mail has ran, they drive by the neighborhood and see what porches have packages on them, and they go and pick up their loot at the night of a night, and that's how they work that. Wow, huh? Interesting. 
<laughs> I'm just thinking about the Amazon or the the box that was left on our front porch <laughs> over the weekend <laughs> that I just got. But I'm not saying anything bad about them, so I think it's okay. <laughs> um, so that's the what the fraud. I will add one next time. I want to just get to the the meat of the topic because uh, this is going to be a big one and we can talk about it for a long time like we can with any of these topics. Well, there is that. (laughs) (laughs) We go on and on. Yes. Yes, we can and we have and we will. (laughs) But trying to, you know, keep this in bite-sized portions here. Um, So we'll dive into today's topic because I know, like I said, we we both have a lot to say about it. Today we're going to talk about friendly fraud or not so friendly fraud. Friendly fraud. Um, Right. This is a, uh-huh. actually a term that Brett didn't know anything about. And he said, so am I a friendly fraudster or a hostile fraudster? And then I said hostile. And then he got mad because he thought I was calling him mean or angry. Well, you've, you've called me what? Kim Jong-un. Oh, you've called, you called me this hostile guy. I oh. thought we settled this before. I never said Kim Jong-un. I'm just saying. Because he hasn't defected. Um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we touched on this a little bit on a previous episode, um, if you recall. But really, so here's, you know, Brett and I have very different interpretations of the meaning of this term. But really, it's it's kind of become a catch-all. And there's several different definitions and examples. And so we'll try to kind of explain all of them to just give an overview. So the history of the term is actually kind of interesting or weird. I was kind of in the right place, right time. (laughs) Several years ago, it was probably like 2010, I was on the chargeback committee. I feel like that's like saying you were part of like the AV club or something in high school, but (laughs) I was part of the chargeback committee for large trade association in uh, fraud and risk for car not present merchants. And we all were kind of realizing that there was this other type of fraud that was popping up. It was the middle of the recession and we were noticing that people were taking advantage of the chargeback rules and credit card rules. And so we had a meeting on site at the annual conference and we're trying to figure out what do we call this? What term do we use? There were several terms. I don't remember all of them, but the term that kind of stuck and then next thing you know, everyone's talking about it across the industry was friendly fraud. And really my definition for it is that the cardholder participated in the transaction. And for me, because I've been so chargeback focused in my career, to me in my brain, it usually means that it resulted in a chargeback. Examples of that are buyer's remorse. The Cardholder used their card, everything went through fine, they got the product, but then they get the bill and they don't want to pay for it. Or they claim that they didn't receive the item when they did. Or the son borrows the mom's credit card to purchase extra skins at a very popular video game. Those kind of things. And I've heard other people recently call it first party fraud and I seem to like that term a little bit better. I Um, like it better. Yeah, it's a little less contradictory and confusing and... Sometimes it's it's harder for me to use that term just because I've been using friendly fraud for, you know, eight years. But that's kind of, you know, my definition of it. it results in a chargeback. And, you know, it, it really impacts merchants a lot because it can't be prevented on a one-to-one transaction level. So with credit card fraud that's hostile where the person isn't using their credit card, they're, you know, stealing someone else's payment method, that can be more pinpointed at the transaction through fraud prevention technology, through rule sets, through 
you know, a number of different things, but behavior biometrics, device ID, you know, machine learning rules, linear rules, whatever. You can detect behavior that is not consistent with the true customer with various rules. You cannot say that this transaction is going to result in a friendly fraud chargeback. You can't guess people's intentions. You can't say that that person is going to claim in a month that they didn't get the product. And, you know, it, the biggest issue is it's really expensive. I read a report recently that said that at the current rate, friendly fraud will cost online merchants $25 billion by 2020. Oh. Yeah, it's not cheap. And I think that for consumers who think, oh, I found a way to get my money back and keep the product. This is awesome. It's not awesome. It costs the merchants so much money. And not to mention that, but merchants are starting to fight back where you're put on a list to not be able to use their services anymore or place an order. Some are sending you to collections. I actually, and I'll probably talk about this later, but uh, in more detail, but at one point we had to civilly sue some of our customers. It was for tens of thousands of dollars. I had to put liens on you know, mortgages and garnish wages. I didn't want to do that, but we didn't have any other way to kind of stop the bleeding. And it also can help be helpful to have consumers not tell five friends, you know, how they got something for free. So, you know, it also creates a need for business decisions around the treatment of consumers that take advantage of the system. So there's a lot of issues that it can cause for merchants from that type of friendly fraud. And then about a year and a half ago, when Brett and I started talking, he was saying, you know, there's this other kind of fraud that I'm starting to see a lot. It's becoming the gateway fraud. And you kind of talked about that before when we right. talked about the progression of a fraudster, that this type of fraud has kind of become the gateway fraud. But you've called it friendly fraud as well. And I totally understand why you do. But, you know, it's different, but equally important of a definition and examples of friendly fraud. And I think this is probably one that merchants aren't as familiar with, or they aren't paying attention because it's not resulting in a chargeback. And if you're in charge of fraud, usually your KPIs are really centered around chargebacks, which makes total sense. But there might be another way that your business is being taken advantage of that you're not paying attention to because you're not measured on it. So with that, you know, why don't you share your examples and definition of friendly fraud? Where to start? Uh, let, let's start at Evolution Marketplace. That was uh, 2013. So 2013 on uh, Evolution Marketplace, it was a darknet uh, market slash forum that dealt in fraud. On that, we started to see members that were talking about making $10,000 a month refunding Amazon products. And the initial response from most everyone that was on the forum, and we were talking about a forum that had, you know, 20,000 people on it. The initial response from those people was bull. That, that can't happen. That's impossible. Amazon has great security. There's no way you're making that kind of money refunding a product. Well, it turns out that they were making that kind of money. So the way it happened, and it, it happened up until really last year. So you could go to Amazon, you could sign up for a prime free trial. You'd use your name, your credit card, your address, and you'd order a MacBook Pro, $2,800. They would send it to you. It arrived two days later. Amazon or the driver would leave it on your doorstep. You'd get on the phone, call Amazon. It didn't show up. Amazon would send you another one. It arrived two days later. The driver would leave it on your doorstep. You'd get on the phone again. It didn't show up. Amazon would give you a refund. That was what was called a double dip. So you could get two products and your money back within 10 days. That worked exactly like that for a solid two to three years. 
at one point, uh, what happened was is Amazon started saying, we're going to require a police report for all these refund purchases over a certain dollar level. So they required the police report. What Amazon didn't consider, though, is that fraudsters and, and cyber criminals overall, if you say one thing about them, you have to say they test every single thing. So hmm, if somebody this says is true. Yeah. Somebody said, you know, I wonder if Amazon's actually verifying this, those police reports. So he photoshops one, sends it in Amazon. Amazon gives the refund at that point. That overnight caused a cottage industry of Photoshop police reports for $25 to pop up and everybody was happy again. That lasted for another six to eight months. And then Amazon started locking things down, started verifying police reports. It still happens at Amazon, but there are, there are, there are certain uh, loops and, and checklists that you have to go through to, to get that refund from Amazon. The problem is, of course, is that Amazon has excellent customer service. So they, they want the customers to be happy. Organized fraudsters noticed that friendly fraud, if you want to call it that, was, was a problem for, for real customers. So if a customer can manipulate a system, a fraudster will manipulate a system. So mm. organized fraudsters noticed it and said, hey, we can actually make this more efficient. We can co-opt it at, to friendly fraud, a lot of the types of crime that we're doing with the drops and using prepaid debit cards and gift cards and everything else and make a lot of money doing this. So what you see now is that fraudsters, when they start, they don't start anymore by buying credit card data. Most of them start with friendly fraud or first party fraud. They start refunding the site. Now, Amazon's locked a lot of things down, but all types of other large merchants are open. And it's not only large merchants, it's any merchant that has really good customer service, that has a product that a fraudster can get and resell quickly for a decent value. It is organized, so you're, you're talking about dealing not only with customers, but also with organized cyber criminals that are hitting this type of fraud. It's, it's not surprising that, what'd you say, $20 billion by 2020? 25. Billion. $25 billion dollars by 2020. That That's not surprising when you think about the Well, numbers. and I think that's just chargebacks, to be honest. I that's don't crazy. think that includes refund fraud at all, based on the report I read. And, and, you know, the thing is, is take Alphabet. Alphabet, yeah, was shut down last year in July, but that was one of, they, they had an entire forum dedicated to refunding. And people mm -hmm. would go, and that's where you got your MacBooks, that's where you got your 65-inch TVs, your living room sofas. You got all that stuff through refunding. And if you were scared, it's so sophisticated that if you were scared to, to communicate with, say, Amazon or whoever the merchant was, someone would do it for you for 15% of whatever the value was of the product you were trying to steal. So it's, wow. it's, it's an extremely sophisticated uh, uh, crime that's going on. After that initial criminal uses his address and his credit card, well, then he starts learning how to use a drop address. He starts learning how to use prepaid debit cards or attached mm -hmm. gift cards to the account, something like that to commit the same type of fraud going over and over. And, you know, we saw it a couple months, was it two months ago, that, that the three people were arrested for Amazon refunding $1.2 million? Yeah, I was going to have you talk about that because we discussed this right before we started recording. And Brett said, can we please, please say the name Amazon? <laughs> um, which is not an uncommon thing conversation for us please, to have before. Please let me say the name, please. <laughs> and I said, you know, because it's been in the news, because Amazon's come out and talked about it, that they've acknowledged that refund fraud became an issue, I think it's totally okay because it's public. You know, I just don't want to sell anyone out. Every company's at a different part in their fraud fighting journey, and we don't want to alienate anyone. I also, it would make my life really difficult at you know, the conferences that I speak at, and, and you probably do if we're, probably. you know, selling people out. So 
But yeah, we are naming them because it was public. And yeah, between three people, $1.2 million in a pretty short period of time. And that's three people. So we're talking about, you know, Alpha Bay had 240,000 members. So if you wanted wanted a new laptop, you didn't go out and buy one for $3,000. You just ordered one and claimed it didn't show up or claim it had a leaky battery or it wasn't in the box or something like that. Well, and you're absolutely right that it's not just Amazon. About a year ago, you sent me a screenshot of an ad placed on Alpha Bay. I think it was right before it got shut down with a list of e-commerce companies of varying sizes and varying verticals, like, you know, different products and business models next to each company name was a dollar limit. So it would say if you go, if you shop at this company, you have to get something under this threshold and I can guarantee I'll get your money back for you. And it was eye-opening to me because that means that there is somebody who's constantly testing those thresholds Absolutely. and constantly saying, okay, so 500 doesn't get refunded, but 495 does or, you know, whatever it is. And this is exactly what you have to say to, they'll either give you a script or they'll do it for you to the customer service and you'll get through. I mean, it's like parenting 10 two-year-olds or something like that all at once, you know, testing boundaries like crazy all the time. And I was kind of shocked at like how many small specialty retailers were on that list. It wasn't just the big guys. I definitely, you know, like we've said before, we, whenever I know somebody, I reach out to them, I send them the the screenshot and said, Hey, I know this is going to seem really random, but I'm starting to work with a former fraudster. And I think that actually that was one of the ways that you proved to me that you knew current fraud information because it was prior to you speaking at CMP in 2017. And I was like, okay, I know you knew your stuff six years ago, but do you know it now? And then there was another instance too, where you said, well, you know, merchant X is being victims of account takeover. And I texted the manager and sure enough, <laughs> they were, they were being victims. Uh, and he was like, how did you know that? We just started seeing it about a week ago. <laughs> and I explained, I do not have, you know, psychic power. <laughs> I just have a good friend who knows his stuff and goes on the dark web. But yeah. So, I mean, I think it's just super important that merchants in general, for this specific type of friendly fraud, you know, it's so important to work with your customer service department. Like I said, I mean, you can be really good at fighting fraud and have the best systems in the world. But if your customer service department is refunding people left and right, because that is their job to serve, like, you know, be good to the customers and wanting to keep that longevity, they're doing their job. But that can actually be impacting your bottom line in a completely different way. So that's one of the reasons why you should be working with their customer service. There are so many. But, you know, try to make sure that you understand the policies and that maybe you crack down on it or maybe you listen to some of the calls. Brett, what else would you say would be good to be able to prevent that type of fraud that you're seeing or that you know about with the refund fraud? What would you tell a merchant? So what I suggest are a couple of things. The first is slow things down. That's what Amazon did. So so at one point, you could get the two products and the refund within 10 days, all right? For a fraudster, that is magnificent because you're using the funds from one fraud to perpetrate the next fraud. So they need that that cycle of funds constantly coming in. So Amazon was was ideal for that. What Amazon did is they slowed things down. And that's that's one of the first lessons I learned as a cyber criminal is if you slow things down, people tend 
tend to throw their hands up in the air and walk away and never come back. So if, if you suspect that something is friendly fraud, you may have to, if it's organized, you may have to pay that first refund, all right? But if you slow it down enough, so instead now to get an Amazon, for, for, to get a refund from Amazon, if it's a suspect refund, you're talking four to six weeks all of a sudden. Those wow. fraudsters, they can't do that because one 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 proceed funds the next pro the next criminal whatever they're going to do so if you slow down the payment that's i think that's number one key the second thing is to understand uh, how these fraudsters are working so initially they're using their card their address their name but hmm. once they once they mine that address out they're going to have to start using prepaid debit cards they're going to have to start using gift cards drop addresses things like that i was so, going to ask you about that if it's if you're seeing refund fraud primarily on prepaid cards and gift cards, once Absolutely. they've figured it out. Absolutely. It turns exactly mm. to that. So, And the idea is, uh, and, and since we're picking on Amazon, we'll use Amazon again. It works with any merchant, though. You mine out your address, then you go get a gift card. You sign on to whatever name the account is in. You can set up a new account. Uh, you can buy an existing login for $3 to whatever merchant you want to buy it for. You add the gift card onto that account. All right. Then... You use that gift card fund to buy the item that you're going to refund. You get the item shipped to you. You say it didn't show up. It wasn't in the box. The battery leaked. Whatever the excuse is. So the refund, then you get to keep the product. The refund goes back to the gift card. Then the fraudster sells the gift card at that point. Hmm. Okay. So uh, my, 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 what I tell people to do is, hey, be aware that if a gift card's been newly added or a prepaid debit card has been newly added to an account, and then all of a sudden these guys are saying the product didn't show up or one of these excuses, that right there is a sign that friendly fraud or organized friendly fraud's happening, and you need mm. to do something about it. Either refuse the refund or um, you know slow it down to a large degree. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a funny story, and I'll say the name because they, they did a great job with it, but Razor, all right? So... Mm. Fraudsters were wanting the, the Razer lap laptops, the keyboards, the mice, and everything else. So you saw these guys, oh, yeah, we can refund them. It's easy enough. So they tried to refund Razer. What Razer did was, is first of all, you can't call them. So you have to, you have to do it through email. So they sent an email saying, you know, the, the items didn't show up. And Razer sent one response. Our records show the item was delivered. It was, it was left on your porch. Hmm. So you, they sent another one saying, what well, didn't show up? And Razor's like, well, we guess you're going to have to institute a charge back at that point. And uh, they left it at that. <laughs> because Razor knew that that was enough information to most likely win the chargeback if they're right. responding correctly. Right. And that was it. And, and at that mm -hmm. point, the fraudsters were like, okay, let's leave Razor alone. Well, and the other thing is, is if the fraudsters are using gift cards and unregistered prepaid cards, they can't issue chargebacks on those. Exactly. Exactly. Huh. Interesting. Well, and I would say that was actually something I was going to say before is, and you kind of answered it a little bit, but you do run the risk of upping your chargeback rate if you're going to be a little bit harder on the refunds. So, you know, looking at your metrics and figuring out how much of these refunds are on prepaid cards and, you know, getting a bin list is extremely helpful for that. You know, looking at that, okay, now how much of this is probably fraud? Maybe we put in a some kind of a process to slow it down where we have an analyst or even a system figure out if it was on a prepaid card or not. And if it wasn't that, you know, something like that. Now, granted, they're going to evolve and then, you know, get other cards, but they really can't use a stolen card for refund fraud because that card's going to shut down. But also that Absolutely. does no good. They have no access to that money. 
and they can't, they don't want to do it on their own card, even though they do it the first time or, you know, just to test it out. So that might be a way to prevent it. They're always going to find a way. But again, my biggest takeaway for that type of fraud, because it wasn't something I knew about until I started talking to Brett and he has a really good article on his blog about it too. It was one of the first blog articles he wrote like maybe 18 months ago, It was, um, it was. but it's really good explanation of this in detail as well. And, you know, might be helpful training for your customer service department and, you know, really working with them on that. And it's not about creating barriers for the good customers. It's about creating barriers for the bad customers. So, or finding a balance between the two, because if you're slowing it down to the point of four weeks to six weeks, you are going to run the risk of more chargebacks, but maybe you do it selectively or, you know, that kind of thing. Or if you have all the documentation required for that type of chargeback, let them do it. As long as you're not close to your 1% threshold. And as long as you have a really good process in responding to chargebacks, let them do it. No, I agree. Um, And that's, uh, you know, that's uh, so, so the excuse is given. So, um, leaky battery, that excuse is given so that the the fraudster doesn't have to send the product. Uh Uh-huh. So they get two products for the price of zero. (laughs) Right. So then you've got, you've got the empty box excuse. The empty box excuse works because the company isn't paying attention to shipping weight. Mm. Okay. So that's well, that some companies do though. Like there, right. <laughs> there is one, I mean, this was like probably four or five years ago, but there's a very large electronics retailer that was experiencing big screen TVs. They would, well, <laughs> fraud with them. So they were sending out a big screen TV and they would record the weight. Right. And then what they would get back when somebody would return it was a piece of plywood with the oh. exact same weight as that TV. Oh jeez. Oh, <laughs> so some companies do pay attention to weight. <laughs> you're, you're talking and by about the time so... they received that, a new TV had been shipped, and now they've received two TVs for the price oh. of zero. <laughs> well, when when, when, it, when everything was pretty wide open with Amazon, what was going on is Amazon would insist on some of the products being returned. <laughs> so what they would do is, is say you ordered that, uh, say you ordered an Xbox One, you're claiming that it's messed up. So Amazon would insist you send something back. So the only thing fraudsters were doing at that point, they would send back whatever. They would send back a PlayStation 2, something of junk. And what was going on is in the warehouse, they didn't even pay attention. It immediately went to the recycle bin, and that was mm-hmm. it. So they still got the refund, got the products, everything else at that point. Jeez. It never ceases to amaze me, the creativity of fraudsters. Like, I've been saying this for years, but... If they just put this kind of thinking to curing cancer or <laughs> or creating world peace, like our world would be a better place. <laughs> but it really is like having a toddler or a teenager. Like they're constantly looking for the path of least resistance. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and I would say, you know, going back to the other type of friendly fraud or first party fraud when it results in a chargeback. One example I had was when I was working for an online travel company, which I named before, but I'm just going to, you know, not name them in this episode. Um, (laughs) If you really want to know, you can, you know, look it up. I was in charge of the friendly fraud process and we definitely around 2010 were seeing a lot of these issues and it was even before we named it that. But one of the chargebacks that stood out, I mean, I looked at thousands of chargebacks to create the process that I did and the response documentation and everything like that. And one of them that really stuck in my head was this family that had taken a large, like all-inclusive vacation. It was probably like six or eight people. I mean, it was quite a few. And the total of the vacation with airfare and hotel and all of that was, 
I think around $12,000. And they used the reason code not as described, which usually means that something was, you know, placed on the internet or there was an ad, not an ad, but like a description on the internet that wasn't what they got. So I thought I was getting a pink sweater. I got a yellow sweater or whatever it is. You know, it, it wasn't as described and that's there for consumer protection. But when you looked at the cardholder documentation of what wasn't described and what they, so they have to say what was described and then what did I receive? And they said that it was not described on the beach, how much seaweed was on the beach and there was too much seaweed on the beach. And that wasn't disclaimed on the website. (laughs) And given the chargeback rules of 2010, granted the card brands have done, you know, some responses to friendly fraud. They have put some things in place to help protect merchants. Is it as much as I would want them to do? Absolutely not. But they are, you know, making progress and I appreciate that. And I know merchants do too, but Back then, with the chargeback rules that were in place, they totally won that chargeback. So they got their twenty twelve thousand nice. dollars back nice. after going on a very nice vacation in Hawaii, minus oh, they... you know, <laughs> a lot of seaweed on the beach. Yeah, the trip was already passed; like they'd already gone. They oh. weren't going to issue the chargeback before the trip. Like, what would be the right. point of that? Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, I mean, I guess they wouldn't have known like how much seaweed there was. So, um, in that situation and in others, we actually send them to collections and not necessarily to collect the twelve thousand dollars, though that would be the goal. The bigger goal, and this was kind of how I pitched it to the company as well, is we could tell that people were being repeat offenders. Once they figured out that they could do it this way, they'd go on more and more trips and they'd tell 10 friends. And so if you're getting a letter from a collection agency like, oh, we know who you are and we want our money back even though you got it through your bank, it changed behavior and it decreased the number of instances. And the other thing is is a lot of consumers think that they're getting it from their bank and they're like, I pay you interest, I pay you an annual fee, whatever. This is just what, you know, what you'll do for me for customer service. They don't realize it comes from the online company. So we found that to be one of the effective measures for preventing friendly fraud. That was more like after the fact. So it wasn't, you know, there are other ways to prevent friendly fraud. And really what I tell merchants as far as preventing friendly fraud, and this is one of my favorite topics. It's super embarrassing, but I love to be able, like I'm just a student of human behavior. And I love to be able to change consumer behavior, change fraudster behavior. And really, it depends on what type of friendly fraud you're seeing. So are you seeing more buyer's remorse or are you seeing more family fraud or more, you know, claims that you didn't get it? And then looking at your process from end to end, what is the user, the language that you're telling your consumers at the time of purchase? What promises are you making in your marketing? What, you know, all those different things. And then also having a really stellar response process. Not enough merchants are responding to chargebacks the right way. And I am trying so hard not to step up on my soapbox, but (laughs) um, I've worked with with so many big companies that don't look at them at all. They're not looking at the data of what they're missing. They're not responding them to correctly. They're hiring a third party to respond to all chargebacks and they're not looking at the documentation to see if it's the right documentation. There's just so many things that I've seen, especially since really targeting my consulting practice towards chargebacks that just really merchants aren't doing themselves any favors. It is so worth having a good solid fraud chargeback process like the company that you mentioned. You know, if they know I have exactly what I need 
for you to, you know, to respond to you saying that you didn't get your computer or whatever it was, then right. file a chargeback because we have a process in place. But I would tell you that probably more, more merchants that I talk to don't have something in place for their chargebacks or they hire it out to a third party and they don't pay attention to the metrics and they don't look at how many of those chargebacks are actually a win in the end and not just a first time chargeback. I probably talk to more of those merchants than I do the ones who really know their stuff and who are responding it the right way. And that's why I do what I do. You know, I've talked to uh, to several merchants and they simply don't understand the chargeback process. Right. uh, You know, they they ask me and I'm like, look, look, ask my (laughs) co-host. She knows everything there is to know about chargebacks. The biggest chargeback nerd I know. (laughs) (laughs) But but me, no, I never worried about, about, about chargebacks when I was committing fraud. Right. <laughs> you know, the thing I really like about chargebacks is that you can make a big difference for your company and not just on the bottom line, but also in understanding your business. I say all the time that to me, chargebacks are like the check engine light of your company. If any chargeback company steals that, I seriously, I'm going to know where it came from. But <laughs> and everyone else who's listening, our thousands of listeners will know, too. It's telling you something about your business. It provides such good business intelligence and it can, it is there while, while it can be confusing and while it can be hard to understand. And I think that what I see with merchants and just with humans in general is if you don't understand something, you're either going to bury your head in the sand and just want someone else to deal with it or not deal with it at all, or you're going to try to learn all about it. And chargebacks are really confusing, but I think what I really like about them is that The process is in place to, if you've done the right things as a merchant, that you can get your money back. And I think that merchants don't always understand the rules or the rules only say one thing, but they, it's hard to know, oh, okay, well, I don't have that, but I have this. Can I use that as that? And that's pretty much what I do all the time is looking at what documentation does the merchant have and then, okay, this can count for this and this is how we word it and really helping them understand the process of getting their money back, but also figuring out why were you getting the chargebacks in the first place? You should never just be sustaining it and not trying to take that information of why you're getting the chargeback and try to prevent it in the first place whether it's a fraud chargeback and it was true fraud, you need to be putting that information into your fraud system so you don't get taken by the same people over and over again. And if it's friendly fraud, what's the pattern of all these? You can prevent future chargebacks by putting changes in place in your process or in your verbiage or so many different things. I have so many different ideas on that. It just really depends on the specifics. But I guess I am on my soapbox, but I think this is a really important part because I just, I hear so many merchants and I know you do too, complain about friendly fraud in almost like a victim tone. Like there's nothing that can be done about it. And so that's why I wanted to kind of share my passion about it is that there are things that can be done. It's just that you have to think creatively about it and really spend some time. But I've been able to provide a very strong ROI with the companies I've worked with to the point where I can firmly tell you that if you spend some time on this, you will get back five, 10 X, if not more on friendly fraud, as well as in fraud, just looking at your chargebacks, disputing them correctly, and then using that information to prevent the chargebacks for in the future. Right. 
Brett, is there anything else that, you know, you'd like to add on the topic of friendly fraud, either your version of friendly fraud or my version of friendly fraud <laughs> or first no, part fraud versus you know, fraud. Maybe we're going to rebrand it and never <laughs> get it from friendly fraud again. Yeah. Let's, let's call it first party fraud. Let's do that. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think uh, first party fraud relates to chargebacks and all that kind of right. what I was talking about. And then I think refund fraud really talks about what you were talking uh, about. I like that because I'm going to tell you when I'm speaking to a crowd and I talk about friendly fraud, it's a lot different when a former felon has talked about friendly fraud compared to some <laughs> merchant. I mean, they look at me like they're about to kill me. That's not friendly, dude. That's not friendly. <laughs> Even if you commit fraud with a smile on your face, that doesn't That's make you friendly. friendly. <laughs> but, uh, you know, what, what I would say is that if you have a product or a service that you make money on, and I've said it before, if you have a product or service you make money on, a fraudster will make money on that same product or service. <laughs> if a customer, if an existing customer can manipulate a system for profit, Profit, a fraudster will manipulate that system for profit. It becomes a chore, and I don't think it's all that difficult. It just it's just a little time consuming being able to separate the the organized groups from the you know the existing customers that are just manipulating for profit. So I think you need to do that. I, I don't think it's difficult to do that. I just think it's time consuming. I think you're exactly right in uh, talking about how to do the chargebacks. How uh, you know understand the rules. If you understand mm -hmm. the rules, then you have the ability to tell that person that you know, hey, you know what, the package was sent. It was maybe it wasn't signed for, but you know what, the weight's right. Everything looks good. Go ahead and do what you need to do, hmm. and go like that. I think that's a lot of the key is just not caving into everything, but. By the same token, you don't want to, to be so forceful that you're you're coming across as giving bad customer service. There's that fine balance you have to find. Absolutely. And when we talk about fraud, it's usually only about 1% of someone's business, maybe 2% if we're going to be factoring in refund fraud. Right. So you have to remember that. I used to tell my team all the time when I managed a fraud department, the bad customers are not the ones paying your paycheck. The good customers are. We don't get money from these guys. So it's important to always be customer focused, but while protecting your bottom line. And there is a way to do both. There is a way to balance it. And the other thing I'd say about chargebacks, just going back to my rant just for a second. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. I thought it was over. <laughs> um, no, I think a lot of people think that fighting chargebacks or doing that could either be bad customer service or could be expensive because you have to hire on a lot of people on your team. And the piece about bad customer service, I once consulted with a very large company that had I mean, millions of dollars every year in fraud and chargebacks in general. And they didn't even look at their chargebacks and put them into their system. So they were just continually having the same bad guys over and over again that their fraud system was missing, which didn't make sense to me. But when I suggested that they selectively and strategically respond to chargebacks, they said, well, that's bad customer service because if we as a very well-known brand fight a fraud chargeback and we win, then that victim's going to go on social media and be upset. Ah, right. And I totally understood that mindset because you're coming to that mindset from experiencing either a third-party chargeback provider or from your own system that just responds to all chargebacks. And when I say selectively respond to chargebacks, I'm saying there has to be a method to assess whether that transaction was true fraud or not. And if it's true fraud, you put it into your system. If it's not true fraud and it looks like the consumer is trying to get something for nothing, that is when you respond to the chargeback. You also only respond to the chargeback when you have 
the right documentation. And I work with merchants to try to get the right <laughs> documentation at the beginning for all transactions <laughs> or as many as possible and understanding the risk. I mean, it's not like I don't want you to have any business or anything. It's just trying to find that balance all the time. And I would say that there are options and abilities to create automated chargeback systems. I've helped build a couple for a few bigger merchants that have the ability to do so from technology standpoint. There's also at least one chargeback provider that I know that does things automatically without you know the human element, but does it in a very data-oriented way. They do other things that I really highly approve of as well, like not collect, you know, not consider it a win or not track it as a win until there hasn't been a second time, you know, come through. Because you right. can, you can, without getting too far into the details, when you provide documentation to the issuer, you could win on paper, but they can come back for a second time. And once they come back for a second time, then you have to decide if you want to go to arbitration or not. And arbitration can be extremely expensive. So they don't count that as a win. They also provide information to help the merchant prevent the chargeback in the first place. They're providing root cause analysis and data information and really stellar reporting. And that's different than other companies I've seen. Now, they might not be the only one. But I think that it's important to know that you don't have to hire 20 people to you know push paper all day. There's a lot of good technology out there that exists to do it the right way, you know, and be able to set parameters and say, we're not going to respond to any chargeback that looks like fraud. And here's what it means to look like fraud. And if it does look like fraud, we need to put that into our fraud system as soon as possible because those guys didn't commit fraud once and then go away. You know right. that better than right. I do. Exactly. <laughs> I've heard stories of companies that haven't been tracking their chargebacks and haven't been putting the right ones into their fraud system. And they'll have two, three million dollars in two years worth of Absolutely. fraud, the, Absolutely. that fraud ring. And then on top of that, one of them, it was an affiliate situation where they were getting paid commission oh. to commit fraud. Oh. <laughs> it was super painful to go back and go, oh, wow, yeah. you guys paid like $400,000 to this person to commit $3 million worth of fraud on your system, Jeez. all because you weren't paying attention to your chargebacks. Right. Right. So there's a reason why I go on this rant. And I hope it, you know, I hope it's helpful to people. If you're not doing it, that's why it's all about plugging up the holes and the fraudsters are always looking for that hole. So it's really important to figure out where they are and be consistent, whether that is a, hostile fraudster or a friendly fraudster <laughs> to a, <laughs> to a Brett's favorite terms, but whether it's the first party fraud or, you know, straight credit card fraud, either way, it's important to be aware of your vulnerabilities and throughout the process, be systemic and, you know, clean about it. All right. So I guess that's it for today's episode. I think it is. Thanks for joining us. We hope you've learned a lot. We've got so many topics to cover to help you protect your business from fraud, so please subscribe to the online broadcast to be alerted when a new episode is out. And because we're new, please tell your friends, rate and review where you can to help others learn about these topics as well. And we want to continue to hear from you guys and you know, know what you love so far about the podcast, how we can improve, what topics you want to hear us discuss. You can find us at The Online Frogcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or find us individually on LinkedIn. Or you can always email at us at info at onlinefrogcast.com. Until next time, stay informed, stay vigilant, and stay secure. 